those people who are great in our world are nothing to God. He is unimpressed. You want to know what the standard of greatness is in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? It's how many people do you serve? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part seven of an eight-part series titled Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. You know, you don't have to look far to determine that culturally, greatness is defined through the amount of power or wealth one has. But for believers, we live and serve in a different kingdom with a completely different standard of greatness. As a believer, you don't belong to the culture of the world. You are a citizen of the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in His kingdom, there really is a totally different standard of greatness. What is it? Well, let's join Tom to find out here on The Word Unleashed. Turn as we begin to Matthew chapter 20. I want you to see Jesus and His definition of greatness. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of Him. Thanks, Mom. And He said to her, What do you wish? She said to Him, Command that in your kingdom... These two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. You see, she had bought into the earthly standard of greatness. It has to do with the position you hold, the influence you wield, the power you have. And that's what she wanted for her boys. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So he answers the question, but then he goes on to teach a far-reaching lesson on greatness in the kingdom. Verse 24, And hearing this, the ten became indignant, of course, with the two brothers. I'm sure that you know it was not happy around the water cooler that day. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Here's the standard of greatness in the world in which you live. I understand that. And James and John, you bought into that standard. Your mothers bought into that standard. But you've got it all wrong. That's here. Those people, you know, I I wish we could really get this in our heads. Those people who are great in our world are nothing to God. He is unimpressed because he marches to the beat of a different drum of greatness. Jesus goes on to explain it. Verse 26, It is not this way among you. It's not to be like this. It's not like this in my kingdom. Whoever wishes to become great, here it is. Here's Jesus' standard of greatness, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you, shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. You know, 
you want to know what the standard of greatness is in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? It's how many people do you serve? And someday, it doesn't look like that here. Even in the church, the standard of greatness sometimes looks a little different. looks more like the world than it does like the kingdom of heaven. But someday, when we stand before Christ, it will all be sorted out. And those whom God sees as great will be recognized by Him in His presence. And it's all about serving. Christ is the unquestioned head of His church. And He has appointed two groups of leaders who are to be servant leaders. Two offices. These leaders are to march to the beat of a different drum. They are not to be leaders and great in the sense of the leaders of the world. Jesus just said that. They serve in a different kingdom. They live by a different standard of greatness. We've examined the office of elder. There are two offices offices uh, in the church, elders and deacons. We've examined the offices of elder. The elder is identified in the New Testament by three words as we studied it together. By elder, speaking of his character, he's spiritually mature. By overseer, speaking of his function, he exercises oversight and supervision. And pastor, speaking of his attitude, he has a shepherd's caring heart. The office of elder is not the only office Christ appointed in his church. According to 1 Timothy 3, there are also to be deacons. And nowhere is this different standard of greatness clearer than when it comes to the office of deacon in the church. And you'll see that as we look at what the word deacon means. It's the word, the Greek word, diakonos. This is a very common Greek word in the New Testament. Our English word, you'll notice, deacon, isn't a translation. Most of our, most of our English Bible is a translation from the Greek. But the, the word deacon is not a translation. It's what's called a transliteration. They just took the Greek letters, essentially, a little variation for English pronunciation, and brought it over into English. Diakonos, deacon. It occurs some 29 times in the New Testament. It speaks of servant. It's translated as servant, as servants, minister, and as deacons. By the way, deacons, when it's translated that way, is always plural, never singular. Like with elders, a church is expected to have a plurality of deacons. At its most basic level, the word means servant. And it's often translated that way. It's a servant. In fact, in secular Greek, as well as in some places in the New Testament, the word is used to identify waiters. It's used to identify messengers, stewards, those who were the keepers of the house, and just general servants. That's how this word is used most frequently in most of Greek writing. So you get a picture of this word. In the church, in the kingdom of God, and the, the expression of the kingdom of God here is the church, in the church, here's one of the offices. One of the offices of leaders are slaves, servants. That's because they're great in the kingdom of God. Now, let's talk for a moment about the office itself and a little bit about the history. The office of elder grows out, as we learned over the last several weeks, the office of elder grows out of the Old Testament. It doesn't just show up when the New Testament arrives. As we learned, there were elders in the Old Testament. There were elders of families. There were elders of towns. There were even elders of nations. So that was already a part of the culture of the early church. And under the, the direction of Christ Himself, that was brought into the church. 
But this is interesting. The office of deacon is absolutely new with the church of Jesus Christ. There's no parallel in Jewish culture. There's no parallel in Greek culture. It simply shows up. So if it never existed before, where did it come from? Well, I think the prototype is Acts chapter 6. Turn there with me for a moment. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So here you have a dispute centered on the distribution of food. It's really a factional dispute. The Hellenists against the Hebrews. That is, those Jewish people who had been Hellenized, that is, had been made like the Greeks. They had adopted the Greek culture, and then there were those who had, uh, and had come, in most cases, transplanted in from outside the nation of Israel. And then you had those who were there and had been there. Their families had been there. They were native Hebrews. And there was a dispute about the fact that the Hellenists were being overlooked. Their widows were being overlooked in the distribution of the food the church was supplying. So the solution is very clear. Verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation of disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God and to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles were Hebrews, therefore they, and this is very wise on their part, appointed Hellenistic men, you'll notice from the names, to supervise. Verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose seven. Notice the qualifications of these men, of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Now there's a lot of debate, in fact there's a great debate, about whether these seven men were the first deacons. The noun for deacon does not appear in Acts 6. However, although they're not called deacons, two words are used in the context that have the same root as the word for deacon. In verse 1, the word serving. In verse 2, serve, tables. And in verse 4, the word translated ministry comes from the same root as deacon. So the concept of service obviously is here if the word isn't. Personally, I do not believe that these men filled the office of deacon. I don't think they were the first deacons. But Acts is a book that provides us with an explanation of many of the foundational things in the church. So I think that Luke includes these verses in Acts 6 to give us the background so we'll understand where the office of deacon came from because this serves as a prototype, I think, for that office. Nowhere else before, not in the Greek culture, not in the, the Jewish culture, and suddenly they arrive on the scene. And I think this is the prototype, this event, this circumstance was the prototype for their beginning. They weren't officially deacons, but they and their ministry point us toward the New Testament office of deacon. Now, let's look for a moment at the New Testament references to deacons. There are two that are very questionable. Some would argue that these men were deacons. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, Colossians 4, 7, Tychicus, uh, the, the word is used. In our translation, it's, it's not translated as deacon. It's translated as servant or something similar to that. And then in Colossians 1, 7, Epaphras uh, also. 
could be a deacon. I don't think he is. I think when it comes down to it, there are really only two specific references to deacons in the New Testament. The first of those is in Philippians 1. Turn there with me for a moment. Philippians 1, verse 1. Now, remember, we studied the book of Philippians. Paul wrote this from Rome in the early 60s A.D. And as he writes to this little church, he says that that he had founded, remember, back in Acts 16, that he'd visited ten years later. Or he'd visited, I should say, in the interim. This is now ten years later. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, they're your elders, and deacons. Notice that even in the small church of Philippi, and we know it was small because several, uh, a couple of decades later, after the Apostle Paul, there was another letter written to them, and it was still a small, struggling church. They still have a plural number of deacons and a plural number of elders. Now, why does Paul mention the deacons in Philippi? Think about this with me for a moment. Why does Paul mention the deacons in Philippi when he doesn't reference them in any of his other letters? Well, I think Robert Sosey in his book on the church has a great explanation. Listen to what he writes. Since this letter, that is the letter of Philippians, was written at least partially as a thank you letter for the contribution given by the Philippian church, it is possible to see the overseers and deacons mentioned as the organizers of that collection with the deacons assisting the overseers in the actual work of overseeing the collection. So they're mentioned here and not elsewhere because this is a thank you letter for the gift they sent. And he references them because they were such a vital part of that process. I think that's a really good explanation as to why the deacons aren't mentioned in any of his other letters. But the primary place where we learn about deacons is in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. This is by far the most detailed and thorough explanation of the office of deacon. It occurs here in Paul's letter to Timothy as Timothy serves in the church in Ephesus. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read this paragraph to you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, before we look at this passage in a little detail, I want to ask the general question, and that is, what can we learn from just general observations of that passage I just read to you? First of all, we can learn that the office of deacon is a distinct office to which a few men are appointed. In other words, it's not merely the recognition of everybody in the church who faithfully serves. It's very specific. It is one of two offices in the church. So it is a distinct office and not merely a recognition of everyone who serves. Secondly, we can observe that by definition, the word servant, the word deacon means servant, and by qualifications, in the list of qualifications we'll look at in a minute, there's no reference to their being able to teach. 
by both of those, deacons are to be focused on serving, not on teaching. Now, let me clarify quickly by saying that doesn't mean that a deacon can't also teach or have the gift of teaching. But teaching is not part of the heart of what it means to be a deacon. By the way, neither does it mean that elders are not to serve. In fact, this word is used of elders. Paul uses it of himself constantly, that he is a servant of the church. Thirdly, the general observation we can make is that deacons are accountable to the elders and under their leadership and direction. Elders are called overseers and are responsible to provide leadership for the entire church. In fact, look back at verse 5. In reference to the elders, they are to take care of the church of God. There's no reference like that to the deacons. They may be leaders of individual ministries, but they are not assigned the oversight of the entire church. The elders are. Number four, the office requires a spiritual man. There's a list here of spiritual qualifications for the man who would fill the role of a servant in the church. The spiritual qualifications both in Acts 6, which as we saw was the prototype, the pattern, and here in 1 Timothy 3, the actual office of deacon, set an extremely high standard. You know, I think this is interesting because in my experience, and I hate to say this, but in my experience growing up in both Southern Baptist churches and in Independent Baptist churches in the South, the deacons often lacked any appearance of spiritual life, much less a genuine spiritual maturity, and yet that is the standard for deacons. Now, let's look at their qualifications. Having made those general observations, let's look at what are their qualifications. There are nine of them listed, and this is interesting. Five of the nine are shared with the elders. In other words, the elders and the deacons share five qualifications. Only four are distinct to the deacons. So what are the qualifications for deacons? First of all, in terms of their character, verse 8, we learn that they are to be men of dignity. This simply means serious, worthy of respect. They're not frivolous about life. They're not known as jokesters. There is certainly, there are men who can enjoy life and enjoy humor and enjoy fun when it's appropriate, but they also know how to be serious when it's time to be serious. They're worthy of respect. They're men of dignity. They're not to be double-tongued. They're not to engage in double-talk. The reference here is to being insincere. They're not to say one thing to one person and then turn and say something else entirely different to another. They're not to be addicted to much wine. That is, they're not to be controlled by wine or any other substance. They are to be self-controlled. Remember, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Not controlled by something else. Nothing else dominates their life. And they're not to be fond of sordid gain. What does that mean? It means they're not greedy for money. This is very important, by the way. If they're going to be handling money, as apparently they did in the early church, then this quality would be absolutely crucial, that they would not be greedy for money. That's his character. But look at his doctrine, verse 9. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. There really are two parts of this qualification. The first is holding to the mystery of the faith. In other words, he embraces the revealed truth of the Christian faith. A deacon must embrace the body of Christian doctrine 
to serve as a deacon. He doesn't have to be a theologian, but he must embrace the revealed truth of the Christian faith. But there's a second part. Not only must he embrace it, must he hold to it, but he must do so with a clear conscience. This means that his life must be consistent with the doctrine that he holds. This man who's qualified to serve as a deacon sincerely tries to live in keeping with the faith he holds. In verse 10, we learn of his reputation. These men must also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Tested. Implied here is congregational affirmation that the man meets these qualifications. There is a period of time over which his faithfulness and his his character qualifications are proved to the congregation and to the elders. It's tested. And then it says he has to be above reproach. This is the result of the careful evaluation. He's found to be, and this is a very close synonym to the word for elders, he's found to be without handles. There's nothing somebody who wants to blame the gospel and to condemn Christ and condemn the church, there's nothing in his life they can grab onto and connect blame. He's above reproach. What about his family? Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Literally, they must be one woman men. Going to serve as deacons? One woman men. As we learned with elders, that means... Not only is, is there been a lengthy commitment to fidelity in a, in a single marriage to a single person, but it means they are pure in both body and mind. They are committed to their spouse in every sense. And they've proven a pattern of faithfulness of that over many years. Also related to family, they're to manage well their children and their entire household. Both their children and the household is a word that encompasses not only the the other people that would be part of a household, including um, extended family, including servants perhaps, but it would also include all of the operations of the household, from finances and everything else. So here is a man who manages well the people he's responsible for, as well as everything else that goes with running a household. Those are the qualifications. So you can see that these are to be Spiritual men with unreproachable reputations. So what are they to do? What exactly is it the deacons are to do? Let's look at the duties of a deacon. The big picture is very simple. Historically, deacons have had the responsibility to administer and serve in some aspect of the affairs of the church. To administer and serve in some aspect of the affairs of the church. But Scripture nowhere directly states what their specific duties should be. And honestly, I think that's by design. I think the Holy Spirit obviously could have included that. But He chose not to. And I think the reason is, it's clear that there are to be special servants under the elders in the church, but I think there is latitude granted for each church to decide exactly what roles deacons should fill. They're servants. Servants respond to the need of the moment. And I think that's the idea of the deacons. God has gifted them in unique ways. What we have done here in our church is we've encouraged our deacons to serve under an elder in the area of his giftedness, leading ministries. And 
I think the, the Scripture grants us, the Holy Spirit has granted the elders of this church and the elders of every other church the responsibility and the privilege of designating exactly what the function and duties of deacons will be. While there's latitude, I do think we can learn something about their duties by examining two things. By examining the Scripture, the qualifications, the, the circumstances, I should say, in Acts 6, in that prototype of deacons, and by the nature of the qualifications here in 1 Timothy 3, and then you throw church history in, and we come up with about six different functions or duties of elders. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, Church Government, Monarchy, Anarchy, or Democracy. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. <laughs>